is a really wonderful passage that I really haven't spent a lot of time studying, and I think it is so important because it speaks to the reality of what we struggle with just as people, as Christians. And really, we're just going to fit, focus on the nature of doubt and the compassionate response that Jesus gives to Thomas after his resurrection. And we're going to see that the resurrected Christ is gracious to our doubts, but wants to move us to greater belief. So I'm, really, I'm just going to go through verse by verse today and explore the importance of this passage to our faith. So starting in verse 19, we see that uh, we get the setup here. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear for the, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So we just picture the, the disciples, the apostles, they're gathered in one place, but they're gathering behind locked doors because they're afraid. Their their Lord, the one they've been following, the one they thought to be the Messiah, had just died on the cross. And And they were fearful for their own lives, that they too may die as a result. Maybe the Jewish authorities would find them. And perhaps they were even gathering together, huddled together to see how they could leave Jerusalem safely and unnoticed. And then Jesus appears. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, these words, peace be with you, are really just a regular greeting of the time. It could be what we think of, how are you? And so it's not a special greeting in that sense, but the disciples would certainly have been glad to hear a gracious, how are you, instead of hearing from Jesus, how could you, right? The last thing that the disciples did was flee the scene of the cross for fear for their own lives leaving only a few women faithful to Jesus at the cross. And so they could have had a condemning, how could you? But instead they got, peace be with you. And they, had been wrestling, they may have been wrestling with their own sense of shame as they thought of how they had abandoned Jesus at the cross. Now, though these words, again, could have been just perceived as almost a basic hello at the same time, Jesus truly meant peace to them, to bring reassurance to them as they sat, huddled together behind locked doors in their fears. Jesus had to say, peace be with you, to calm their fears as they, again, feared for their own lives. And they're already skittish, right? They're skittish, and yet at the same time, they find that some person has managed to appear out of nowhere, even though they had locked the doors to make sure that they were safe. And they find that it is Jesus Now, again, put yourself in their shoes. They're thinking, is this really Jesus resurrected as as he had promised, or is this a ghost of Jesus? And so it's not surprising then that Jesus shows them his hands. He shows them his side to show that he is resurrected, physically resurrected, and yet in a new body, a heavenly body. And so their faith was filled in their hearts and restored as they, again, went from fear to rejoicing in the appearance of the resurrected Christ. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus here jumps straight into giving them a commissioning, 
right? A brief commissioning compared to, let's say, the great commission they were given in Matthew, where many more words were said and recorded. It's ascending nonetheless, and it's a, a great commission in the sense he is sending them out to offer forgiveness to the world, to preach this message of restoration between God and humanity and forgiveness between human to human, forgiveness amongst people. And then he doesn't just leave them with this sending off, this commissioning. He tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. He empowers them with the power of God to dwell inside of them and sends them out into the world to share this message of forgiveness to the world. It is a power with a purpose. A purpose, again, to bring this message of forgiveness to the world that was in need. I wonder, as I hear these words of Jesus commissioning to the disciples, do we even believe in forgiveness anymore? In a world where we struggle to believe that there's any absolute truth, where we think hurting someone is just a matter of subjectivity, where maybe the best we could do as an apology is, I'm sorry you feel that way. Or perhaps, I'm sorry what I did led you to feel that way. And then we all know when we have been hurt or wronged, what we want to hear is not, I'm sorry you feel that way. What we want to hear is, I'm sorry I hurt you and I wronged you. I apologize for hurting you and, and, and wrong. I was going to say wronging, but that, I don't think you can say that. I'm sorry for having wronged you. That's what we believe a true apology is, right? We may live in this world where we think and are told that truth is relative, that there's really no transgressions, and yet our response when we are hurt very much affirms that we want there to be right and wrong. We want there to be truth. And when that someone has crossed that line with us and hurt us, we want not... I'm sorry you feel that way, because when we hear that, what we hear is, really, you're being too sensitive. Get over it. We want to hear, I apologize for having wronged you and hurt you, to recognize and acknowledge the wrong that has been done. It's almost to the point, I think, as Christians, particularly, we have this burden because we believe in this forgiveness. And we have this burden, particularly, imagine if you're a public figure, we have this burden that if we are truly apologetic for something, that we should apologize so specifically that we would fear that we would be legally sued or at least have to face being roasted on social media. That's the kind of apology that God calls us to if we believe we have wronged and hurt someone. God calls us to go out and share this message of forgiveness. To share a message of forgiveness requires believing that wrong has been done, that forgiveness is needed. And Jesus says he has come and he has raised from the dead to bring peace between God and humanity and peace amongst people. And so in a divided country, we need forgiveness, right? We need to be able to offer forgiveness. We need to be able to receive forgiveness when it's appropriate. We need to be able to share this good news of forgiveness, not forgiveness as getting over our mad feelings, but forgiveness as reconciliation between people. That's a much higher degree of forgiveness that we're called to as Christians. It's the kind of reconciliation that God is wanting to do with us. He is calling us to restore relationships. And he sends us as Christians in the power of the Holy Spirit 
to live out this kind of forgiveness. Now, it is interesting that in the Gospel of John, that what we find here is this very serious commissioning of sending out the apostles with this message of forgiveness, and yet this message of the resurrected Christ is followed immediately in this account with doubt by one of the apostles. Not just any one of the disciples, but one of the apostles. Now, it's interesting, and then it's important to say this, because often if we've been in the church long enough, we think there's all these things that we should do. There's all these things that we should believe in. And yet, if there's doubt in our hearts, that's something that God wants to speak to and address. The reality is, if there's doubt in our hearts about the resurrection of Christ, if there's doubt in our hearts about who God is, if there's doubts about what Christ has done, then there's going to be doubts in our hearts also about what God calls us to go do, what Jesus sends us out to go do. And so God includes this account of doubting, this account of Thomas's doubting, so that we might see our own doubts reflected in Thomas's doubts. And this is a really, I think, crucial point to say because Christianity, particularly I would say in the evangelical tradition, has sold certainty to its congregations. And what that means is that, yes, it is good to know that God is unchangeable. It is good to know that scripture is trustworthy. It is good to know that there is a truth that we can rely on. It is good to know that our faith applies to our everyday life. But it is not good to preach certainty to the point of not giving people space to come to conclusions themselves, to give them room to, to, to wrestle with their doubts, to wrestle with their beliefs. And so let's dive into what we see Thomas going through specifically in relationship with Jesus. So in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, just a little bit about Thomas. He's not really known for much other than being the apostle who doubted. But he does appear two other times in John before this account of him doubting. So in John 11, verse 14, we hear this. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And then we hear again in John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And then verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas comes across as this person who is loyal, who is outspoken, and even rather pessimistic. In both cases, he seems to impulsively, passionately just blurt out his thoughts. And in the case of hearing of Lazarus' death, he, he says, let's go die with him, which is an interesting response. And it's interesting that in, this second, in his second appearance in the Gospel of John, the subject of his interaction with Jesus is very closely related to his doubting, to Jesus' resurrection. And his, and his words, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Show clearly that at that point, Thomas and, and probably the other apostles as well, 
don't really understand Jesus' plan of salvation at that point. So verse 25, we continue in the story. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's, again, rather dramatic, Thomas. He's saying, I want to stick my hand into his side. I mean, that's a bit much, isn't it? Do we really need to stick your hand into Jesus' side? Is it not enough to see him, to just kind of touch him? But I think, again, it just shows the kind of person he is. He's this impulsive, passionate person, just blurts out what he's thinking. And yet at the same time, he's, he's expressing his doubts. And one commentary translated this, they kept saying, giving this idea of, They kept, the other disciples, the other apostles kept saying, we saw the resurrected Christ. We saw him. And it's almost like Thomas continued over and over again to disbelieve the testimony of his friends, of his apostles, and demanded that he see for himself, that he see Christ for himself. And so we see in this account... Just to summarize, that Jesus appears to the apostles after the resurrection. Jesus sends them out to share the gospel of forgiveness and and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, to be given the power to do so. But then Thomas exemplifies the doubt that many followers have and had then and even have now that they struggle with. Many of us are in Thomas's position. We hear people talk about Jesus being real. We hear about the reality of the resurrection. We hear about the divinity of Christ expressed to us. We hear about his conquering of sin and death at Easter. And yet, none of us have seen Jesus in person. And sometimes we struggle with doubts. We believe like Thomas, but we also have doubts like Thomas. We believe, but we want God to bring more proof Charismatics ask for supernatural signs. Intellectuals ask for evidence and reason. Pietists ask for personal experiences with God. Social social justice-oriented people ask for the church to engage in societal reform. Relational people ask for a manifestation of Christ's love in a community of God's people. Thomas asked to see Jesus in person, to see Jesus face to face, to touch Jesus flesh to flesh. I assume you are here in this room because you believe in the resurrected Christ, or at least you're interested in this resurrected Christ. The one who had said he had come to die on the cross for the sins of the world, the one who raised from the dead to defeat the power of sin, and the one who comes to bring forgiveness to this world. But I want to ask you, what doubts do you have? What doubts do you have? We all have doubts of one kind or another. We've all been through times of trial or suffering and we've asked these questions either to ourselves or to the Lord or to other people. Where is God? Is God real? Does God care? Why does he let me suffer? What about heaven? What about hell? What about Satan? Is any of that real? What is God's will for my life? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? So many questions, so many doubts that we have of God and ourselves. And our doubts are a sign of our own brokenness, but also the brokenness in which we live in in this world. 
Doubts are a normal part of faith as we live in this world, and Jesus wants to speak to them. I have this uh, handout that you see on your chairs that you may have sat on. It's a, a song that we're about to play. It's called Doubting Thomas, and it's by a bluegrass folk band called Nickel Creek that were popular not so recently, a little bit, maybe 10 years ago. And it's, there is some irony in me sharing this song because I was introduced to this band by a friend I shared about last week, a friend named Dwayne who passed away from an epileptic seizure. And he, he made, this is going to date me, but he made, uh, his wife and him made Amber and I this CD, a mixed CD, and the CD contained one of these, this, this song by Nickel Creek, Downing Thomas. And I want you to just listen to this song. I want you to take a look at the lyrics. This is a song for me that helps me to remember the doubts that I have. And that might sound strange to say that, but I think it's actually good for us to deal with the reality of the doubts that we have rather than what we often do, which is to try to suppress the doubts that we have, rather to bring those doubts to God and ask God to speak them. So as you listen, I hope that you would allow the Lord to surface the doubts that you have and to speak to them.
who wrote this song, he said this, We are tempted to distance ourselves from the things that are truly powerful and beautiful in life. Faith is certainly one of those things. Faith is huge, and so are friendships and our family relationships. And then he says in another spot, Anything that is truly worthwhile is both powerful and dangerous at the same time. Anything that is truly beautiful and lovely can also turn twisted and ugly. But we can't hide from all of that. That's what is real. I wonder what your doubts are. I wonder what those thoughts are that in the middle of the night that come across your mind and you just try to push aside thinking that it's not good to doubt. The Lord would not want me to doubt. And certainly doubt is not what God wants for us long term. And yet as we live in the broken world, we live with the reality of having doubts and questions of God specifically. And we don't need as Christians to try so hard to keep it together, to be so perfect, to present a beautiful face to the world. What is more beautiful and more powerful is to allow ourselves to show the tension of faith and doubt that we all have in some way and to be brave enough to ask the Lord to speak into those doubts. I think preachers and parishioners alike try not to think about doubt too much because there's this fear if I allow just a seed of doubt then it's all going to fall apart. I think our God is much bigger than that. And our God can speak to the little seeds of doubts or the very, very big doubts and answer them if we continue to bring it to them. And this, again, is a song that I learned from a friend who died in a time where it created doubts for me, where I had to say, Lord, why? Why would you take such a good man at such a young age to leave a wonderful wife behind. Why? Why? What? How could you be good if you would do something like this? It creates questions. And there's so much suffering in our own lives that create those kinds of questions. And yet those are the questions, those are the doubts that we must bring to God. Maybe in the same way that Thomas does, impulsively and passionately, just blurting out to God, God, show me. Show me your hands. Show me your side. Show yourself to be true. Verse 26, he says this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Perhaps that first time the resurrected Christ appeared to the apostles, Thomas, full of emotion and perhaps despair, just couldn't bring himself to go join the rest of them. One week later, perhaps he had sufficiently composed himself and hearing the testimony of his brothers, he, he joins them and Jesus appears in almost exactly the same way as they gathered behind locked doors. Out of nowhere, Jesus appears and Thomas must have been startled by Jesus' words to him. 
as if Jesus was there when he spoke those words of doubts to the other apostles when they told him about Jesus' appearance. And yet Jesus did not shame Thomas for his unbelief, but gave him evidence and opportunity to believe. Again, Jesus came with, how are you? Not, how could you? And Jesus came with peace and not punishment. God was gracious to Thomas in his doubts. These words that Jesus says at the end, do not disbelieve but believe, are interesting words and some might find hard to understand. I always find it curious to see how different translations deal with certain phrases and this is one of those, those phrases that apparently have been translated very differently and yet not, but... So I'm going to mention a bunch of translation versions, some of which you probably haven't heard of. But the NASB says, translates this, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. The message says, don't be unbelieving, believe. The NRSV says, do not doubt, but believe. The NLT says, don't be faithless any longer, believe. The NIV says, stop doubting and believe. The CEB says, stop doubting and have faith. The common Jewish Bible says, don't be lacking in trust, but have trust. Sometimes when we hear different translations that translate it slightly differently, it gives kind of a fuller, rounder meaning of it. But it's interesting that it's probably the most wooden translation that is most revealing. The most wooden translation, and you wouldn't translate in English this way because it's so awkward. The most wooden translation would be, stop becoming an unbeliever and become a believer. Stop becoming an unbeliever and become a believer. This verb become is prominent in the Greek. And this, this, this very wooden translation, very, very little translation, and, and really all of the other translations as well, show us that faith is progressive. Faith is progressive. Yes, for some, there might be a very dramatic moment where you go from no faith to faith. And I see my own story as being one of those. But even mine, there were stages of faith before the dramatic moment. But some are just born into the faith. But regardless, once the journey begins, whether at birth or later in life, faith is progressive. And we see this throughout the gospel gospels in the book of Acts. We see the apostles and disciples wrestling with faith in Jesus. That they are, they are presented with moments whether they're going to choose to believe more, choose to believe in the greater revelation of Christ as he continues in ministry, or whether they choose to walk away, just as many in the crowds had walked away when Jesus seemed to have said something that just was too much to them. Faith is a progressive thing. We are all presented with moments throughout our life where we have a choice whether to choose to believe more deeply in, in Christ, in who He is, in what He offers, or to turn away. Yet, it's never over until the day we die and we go be with the Lord. But there's always this tension of faith and doubt, just like there is in this moment where Thomas is dealing with Jesus. I mean, put yourself in his shoes where Jesus gives, this, gives them his opportunity to stop becoming an unbeliever, become a believer. 
Put yourself in his shoes leading up to this moment. Maybe in anger he was thinking, what's up with Jesus? Why would he appear to all the other apostles but not when I was there? Or maybe he was in shame, feeling like, why was I so fearful and, and, and cowardly that I, I wasn't with my brothers when, when Jesus appeared to them? <clears throat> Yet in the midst of his doubts, in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his shame, Jesus appeared again to him to show himself, to speak words of comfort and challenge, to speak words of peace and believe. And so Thomas responds in this way in verse 28. My Lord and my God, Jesus said, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas went from doubt in the resurrection to calling Jesus my Lord and my God. And this is important for this reason. This, in the Gospel of John, is in a sense a climax of faith. The other apostles, when they saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, they said, My Lord, we were so glad to see my Lord. Yes, they believed he was resurrected. Yet, Thomas is the first to be recorded, and it's the last word of faith to say, My Lord and my God. He recognizes Jesus, who appeared before him as a human, as God. And from a Jewish perspective, in a strong belief in a monotheistic God, this was a great proclamation of faith that Thomas believed that this was God before him. Not just his Lord, not just his Messiah, not just his master, but God himself before him. It's interesting that in this crowning moment of belief on Thomas's behalf, Jesus doesn't take the moment, though, to commend Thomas's faith. What Jesus does is then he speaks to the future. He commends the faith of those who are to come. He commends the faith of those who will believe without seeing, without touching Jesus. He commends the faith of ourselves. The ones who have come thousands of years later after Thomas to believe in what Christ has done. And it reminds us of the words in the Apostle Paul in First Peter, First Peter where he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, know, do, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Despite whatever doubts you may have, be encouraged, my friends, that you have believed, that you have believed and you have rejoiced in Him without seeing Him, without touching Him, that you have believed Him to be the Savior of your souls, the one who brings hope to this world, the one who brings forgiveness and reconciliation to this world you've loved him despite you cannot touch him and this account ends almost in a weird kind of way but verse 30 says now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name this commendation of this future faith that we have here today has a purpose And the purpose 
is the same as which this purpose of this book which was written was so that those who were to come after would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that we are reminded ourselves as well that we are sent. That we are commissioned by Jesus as well to bring the message of forgiveness to the world. Yes, the resurrected Christ is gracious to us in our doubts. Yet he wants to move us to greater belief and to send us into the world with this faith and this belief. You may have seen that the, this little sermon series is called Post-Easter, Now What? Now what? Let's continue to love him. Let's continue to bring this message of forgiveness and hope to the world, even as we wrestle with our doubts. And may we pray along with the father of the sick and suffering child in the Gospel of Mark. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray.